0: The military says a Pelosi-Taiwan trip is not a good idea. President Joe Biden said yesterday that U.S. military officials believe it's not a good idea for (laughs) House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to visit Taiwan at the moment. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, Ken, welcome back.
1: Good
0: to be here. Biden's comments in an exchange with reporters came a day after the Chinese foreign ministry said it would take resolute and strong measures should Pelosi proceed with reported plans to visit Taiwan in the coming weeks. Quote, well, I think that the military thinks it's not a good idea right now, Biden said in response to a question about Pelosi's trip, but I don't know what the status of it is. He stops short of suggesting that Pelosi not travel to Taiwan. Dr. Hammond, there are a number of issues with all of this. Um, Let's just start with Biden saying the military thinks it's not a good idea. To me, that comment shouldn't come from Joe Biden. That comment should come from Lloyd Austin.
1: Well of course uh, uh the president is also the commander in chief so mm-hmm. you know he 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 has a he probably has some although who knows with Biden probably has some insight into that <laughs> i think though it's a very important comment i think that it was uh a, it's remarkable to have the president uh, make this kind of public comment about a trip that the speaker of the house is uh, you know planning to make in his own party she's the uh you know the house leader of the democrats it it certainly uh, suggests i think we touched on this uh, last time we talked a little bit about some of the disarray within uh, within this administration some of the you know uh, conflicting messages that seem to get sent out uh sometimes even by the same person of course as we know uh biden has on some occasions uh reaffirmed the american commitment to the principles of the shanghai communique and the subsequent bilateral agreements with China, the one China policy, Taiwan's position as a part of China. And on the other hand, turns around and and, uh, says things about, uh, you know, the United States being ready to go to to military defense of Taiwan. So, you know, there's certainly uh, contradictory statements coming out, uh, not just from the White House, but now conflicts apparently between the Speaker of the House and uh, and the President, so that's interesting. But the, to have the military, to have Biden, you know, uh, attribute this to to the military leadership, I think is also quite revealing, because uh, I, I think the military is probably not really eager to have some sort of serious confrontation with China. You know, this China is not in a position where where you know the U.S. military is just going to kind of push them around. Uh, China has been uh, strengthening its its capabilities. It has been, uh, you know, developing its uh, its systems. Uh, and, and you know, they're not they're not just a, a trifle to be to be batted out of the way anymore. Uh, so I think the military is probably taking this this question of the the, the tensions around Taiwan, if we want to call them that uh, fairly seriously and to have them. Uh, apparently, uh, communicate to the president some uh, some reserve or some anxiety about uh, this intended provocation on the part of uh, Speaker Pelosi. A political gesture. Uh, I think it, it bespeaks some some deep concerns that uh, that must be you know, <laughs> circulating in the halls over there at the Pentagon.
2: The other thing I think it reflects is uh, the deterioro- deterioration of our system, of our so-called system che- of checks and balances, whereas Joe Biden's the head of the executive. But it's not, this is the way I take it, and you can tell me if you think it's wrong. Well, if I say it, she'll just ignore it. But in our society, we worship the military. So if the grand priests of our society now, the ones who we worship and we put it at the highest honor, the military, she's got to say, oh, my God. You mean the military said it? Yes. Well, I couldn't possibly do it then. It kind of reflects a society that's turned into a mi- militaristic, worshipping society where all you have to do is utter the name the military, and everybody drops to their knees in awe and says, "Thank you for you know allowing me to exist." I mean, maybe I'm pushing a little too far, but what do you think? Well, no,
1: I, I agree with that. I think that's a that's an important. Uh important aspect of this that you know as you say it, Biden what does he think it's not enough for the president of the United States to to make this kind of statement he's got to invoke uh you know the specter of of the military as if well you know I know I'm a little muddled about stuff but uh, you know these guys they're they're serious and we better pay attention to them there is such a you know there's this intense fetishization of uh, of the military uh, in our in our society and you know i mean of, of the application of violence in general as we see so yeah it's a it's kind of a telling uh, moment for biden to 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 kind of play that card in a sense in what clearly is a is a difference of opinion between uh, you know two two different leaders of the democratic party the, the president and the third person in succession to the presidency, it's a it, it as I say it, it suggests that uh, that that all is not well in terms of people who are who are running the country and and trying to formulate some sort of or maybe they're not trying to formulate some sort of coherent policy towards China.
0: I, I don't want to belabor this, but I'll belabor this. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think that there are a couple of other things. One is as the titular head of the party. Biden, or let me say other presidents, stronger presidents, would have called Pelosi either into the Oval Office or just on the phone and said, no, Nancy, you're not going. Um, Now, to avoid that perception of conflict, this is why I said I think it should have come from Lloyd Austin. To avoid that, that perception of conflict, Lloyd Austin should have been on television saying, I know the speaker wants to go, but as the either either Austin or the head of the um, joint chiefs should have come out and said, no, this is not a good idea. Or because this is really in the to me more in the diplomatic side of the administration, the secretary of state should have come out and said, this is not a, a good idea. Unfortunately, he's an idiot and he thinks it is a good idea, so that's why he's not going to say it. So I, I just I, there are many I think pieces to play here. I just think strategically this has been poorly handled.
1: Oh, clearly, and and the fact that that the president would would make this kind of thing as a public statement exactly as you say. I mean, imagine Lyndon Johnson in this in this Thank circumstance. You. He would. He would have had the speaker in there in a moment and, and, you know, they would have settled this. uh,
0: In two months. You know,
1: pretty pretty expeditiously, (laughs) yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, it also suggests the fact that Biden comes out and makes this statement. It suggests that Pelosi perhaps hadn't even advised him that she was going to do this.
0: Don't you think that that she would have cleared that? He says, I don't know what the status of this is. Joe!
2: right. Well, he was on but wait a minute, Joe was honest there. Anytime Joe says I don't know,
0: oh, he, he doesn't you, 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 know. Yeah, right, but <laughs> damn, Joe, come on!
2: They you're, probably told him he just don't. You're even remember.
0: supposed to know these things. I'm
3: sorry, can't go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, it is. It, it's kind of an important relationship, you know, between the United States and China, and uh, this would be the highest-ranking American official to to visit Taiwan since uh, since you know the the recognition of China back in 1979. It's 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 such a remarkable undertaking in the first place. We talked about that, was it yesterday? Yes. And uh, you know, I mean, it's just uh, it, it's such a such a flagrant provocation, uh, and yet now we have the president turning around and saying, "Well, this isn't such a good idea. The military doesn't like it. I don't know what's going on." But you know, it, it just it just it it it's uh, the Chinese must be scratching their heads that today. You know, I mean, they were they were righteously upset about this yesterday and that makes perfect sense what are they thinking today you know it's always good to have an idea that the person on the other side of your negotiations the other side of your discussions the other side of your relationship has some clue about what's going on and this suggests that you know between biden and blinken and pelosi and who knows who else that that they're really kind of not uh, not all reading from the same
2: uh, hymn book here, you know. Can you imagine this goes down, World War 3 starts and they look at Joe Biden. Joe, what's happening? How'd World War 3? What's going on? Man, I don't I'm not sure. Somebody we have I to call. I don't know what the status I don't know of what the status it is. The of World War 3 is it somehow started and uh I'm going to eat ice cream <laughs> in the rose garden. Hey, Henry Kissinger, well, wait a minute.
0: Let, let me let me ask you one more question about this, Ken. And that is Yeah, yeah. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says China will take resolute and strong measures. How concerned should we be? The United States has sent six ships into the region. How concerned should we be that on number seven or number eight, somebody's going to launch a missile at a, at, a, at a destroyer coming through the East China Sea? Well, I think that uh, that we should be concerned about
1: that. I don't think the Chinese are are going to be reckless enough to to you know to, to 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 buy into these provocations unless the United States really pushes into a more
0: aggressive posture, a,
1: a more close encounter kind of uh, kind of provocation. Okay. Although you know this uh, uh, the the destroyer that went through the straits, uh, I think it was yesterday. Yes. Uh, going, I, I believe, south to north, uh, encountered, uh, going the other way, uh, one of the Chinese aircraft carriers, the Shandong. Uh, and, you know, that kind of situation can be a little tricky. There was that encounter down in the South China Sea about a week ago or a few days ago. So clearly China is, is not going to take this. It's not going to, you know, just, just acquiesce in this. But there was also, there were a couple of statements in uh, in Chinese media today uh, uh, by not not top level military officials, but by you know people characterized as defense analysts and things like that, saying that uh, you know it may be that China will come to see these these provocations and and they certainly characterize them as that um, almost as as more routine and that they 'll be able to mm-hmm. You know, uh, not exactly uh, ignore them, but uh, but kind of contain this uh, in some way. And, and I would hope that that would be more of the response, because obviously the last thing that would be good for anybody would be for this to trigger right. some actual exchange. Uh, I think that's something that we all want to avoid.
2: Yeah, and certainly the, um, the Chinese have the options of and, – and, and what people don't think about this is they could say, you know what? We're going to do to you what you're doing to Russia. We're going to put maximum sanctions against the United States. And as our number one trading partner, we got one minute, that would be devastating. And the West never thinks – the U.S. never thinks that China could come up with that particular angle. Uh, one minute.
1: Well, I think that that uh, if anything this this kerfuffle with uh, with the, the military and Biden and Pelosi suggests that there are at least some uh you know I don't know if we want to call them cooler heads but some people with a little bit more rational analysis somewhere in the policy pipeline and all we can do uh, not all we can do but one of the things that we can do is hope that perhaps those those more those calmer and more rational voices may come to have a stronger place in the discussions that are going on.
0: Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
1: Always glad to be here.
0: Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Spundick. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Antiwar.com has a piece entitled Ukraine, U.S., Russia, Dangers of Tit for Tat. In an unusual escalation of words depicting Russia's broadened aims in Ukraine, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov today declared that Russia's military, quote-unquote, tasks in Ukraine, territorial objectives are no longer limited to the Donbass. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He was a CIA analyst for 27 years. He's on the steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Ray McGovern, as always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. You wrote, Lavrov told Russia state news agency RIA. Navrosti. things had substantially changed since the Russian-Ukraine peace talks in Istanbul failed four months ago. Then the focus was on Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbas. Lavrov said, now the geography is different. It's far from being only the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics. It's also Kherson and—help me out with that pronunciation, Ray. Z-
4: Z- 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 Z-
0: yeah, like what, what he said. Oblast and a number of other territories, and this process continues consistently and persistently. Ray, why is this tit-for-tat so dangerous?
5: Well, I couldn't believe uh, that number one, Lavrov would say this openly, and number two, that the Western press would pretty much ignore it, and worst of all, not put two and two together. Uh, I was drafting this. By the way, when we say yesterday, that was when we say today, that was yesterday. I was drafting this, and, and I, I said, well, "My God, I got to get this right up." Uh, it's on antiwar.com this morning, and then I said, "You know, this is really interesting because, well, let me go to the original Russian." Says says Ray, because Novosti did not put out an English version, and and that's why I put this in italics. You know. That we're no longer limited here, and uh, we're continuing to to pursue our our um, our objectives not only in uh, Donbas, but in uh, areas like Kherson and Zaporozhye. Well, you know, uh, I had remembered that the day before, the day before yesterday, uh, John Kirby speaking to the White House says, "Ah, we're gonna we're gonna change the situation by sending my more." High Mars, now high Mars for the uninitiated, are uh, high altitude uh, and multiple uh, multiple artillery systems, okay? Now, what's the big deal there? Well, they, they think it can, their range is 50 miles, okay? Well, even if we tell the Ukrainians now, please, please don't use them to, to attack Russian territory, the Ukrainians will salute smartly and say, well, you know, Crimea is part of Ukraine. Nobody recognizes Crimea as Russian territory, and we've got a, a couple of favorite bridges that we'd like to act down there and a couple of other targets. So here is Lavrov saying, look, uh, and he says specifically in the, the Russian translation, that the Russian original that I read, he talks about HIMARS. He says, you know, I don't know. Well, I I won't paraphrase him. I'll read it. He said, whether it is out of impotent rage that the West is losing or in a desire to aggravate the situation as much as possible, the West is pumping more and more long-range weapons. For example, HIMARS. Now, because of this, the geographic tasks of our special operation will move even farther forward from the current line. Again, quote, because we cannot allow the part of Ukraine that Zelensky will control, control or whoever whoever replaces him, Mr. Lombard's forwards here, uh, we can't allow them to have weapons that still pose a direct threat to our territory and the territories of those republics who have declared their independence and want to determine their future on their own, end quote. So what's the deal here? Well, I'm thinking back at the White House briefing two days ago where John Kirby said, "Oh, hey, uh, we're going to send more HIMARS, we're going to send more weapons so that the Ukrainians will win this. And then all of a sudden on my screen comes an announcement from the Pentagon that Defense Secretary Austin, has said, oh, the Lockheed Martin built HIMARS? We're we're sending four more of them, bringing the total to 16. Uh, Now, the Ukrainians keep telling us, and we believe that they're being used, quote, effectively, end quote, and that they have already, quote, made a difference on the battlefield, Defense Secretary Austin's words. Well, hello, Uh, Could the New York Times, the Washington Post not put these two two together and say, hey, guys, the stakes are really raised here. They've raised the ante, both sides. This is really, really dangerous. No. (laughs) The best they did was have a couple of separate articles missing, missing completely another quote that I chose to include from Lavrov himself. And I'll use that before I finish. He says in a very interesting article published on Monday, quote, NATO instructors and HIMARS systems aimers, he means targeteers, apparently are already directing the actions of the Ukrainian armed forces and the nationalist battalions on the ground, period, end quote. Uh, Why do I include that? Well, most people and the military experts that I depend upon don't believe that any of the Ukrainians are trained well enough to run the HIMAR. So who's doing it? Who's doing it? NATO forces, probably including U.S. forces. You know, this is a little dangerous. Not a little dangerous. It's very dangerous. And if it continues on this kind of uh, arc, um, we're going to be in even deeper trouble than we are now.
2: I see another article. Al Jazeera: Russia resumes critical gas supplies to Europe via Nord Stream One. Although I do uh, understand they're still getting a you know about a third of the gas that they um, that they normally get. Your thoughts on this whole gas saga, wherein Europe seems to be committing economic suicide, um, trying to take out Russia, and it's not even it's not even working. At any rate,
5: your thoughts on on, on the gas saga in Europe, Ray McGovern. Well, it's actually the leadership vacuum in Europe. Um, these are a bunch of political hacks. When I think back to their predecessors, people like Willy Brandt, uh, lots of people I could mention. Um, these people pale in comparison and what they're doing is committing suicide for the economies of Western Europe. Now. There are certain people speaking up now, the Hungarians, for example, some of the Italians, the Greek trade unions. So it's going to happen. It's got to happen soon, though. Uh, Michael Hudson, who is my favorite economist on all this, talks about, well, his final line here is worth remembering. Uh, He talks about the economic damage of all this. And he says, quote, the military battlefield will be littered with economic corpses. So let's say this arc continues the way it's going, this straight line, really not an arc at all. Uh, The economies will be shattered. There will be popular insurrections in Western Europe, mind you, and the rest of the world, that is China, India, Iran now, which has actually proved to be a real ally of Russia by approving, actually approving vociferously, what Putin has done in Ukraine. Uh, These things, the world is really divided in two now, and it's these hapless um, sycophants in Western Europe that bow to U.S. diktat, and they don't realize, perhaps, that in just a couple of years, if not months, this diktat is not going to amount to anything. Uh, nobody's going to listen to it. And they're going to be really freezing in the basements of their
0: homes. Russia restarts gas to Germany. Ray, it, it seems as though President Vladimir Putin is a lot smarter and much more uh, strategic than people are giving him credit for.
5: Well, yeah, you know, they have to repair these things now. You know, don't forget that. They have to put them out of commission for a couple of weeks and make sure uh, those turbines are going as fast as they're supposed to go (laughs) on. There are all kinds of stratagems that he can use. He's got the high cards here and that the Europeans didn't realize that before they let themselves be harnessed into this unwinnable situation at Biden's request. You know, it's it's scarcely believable 77 years after the war that they can't start acting like adults. Now, as they look at Biden, you know, not only does he have COVID now, I mean, he's admitted (laughs) that he can't even control Nancy Pelosi, (laughs) you know? I mean, she's going to Taiwan. And Biden has just said, well, you know, the military, my military people say she shouldn't do that. No, she shouldn't do that at all. Well, of course she shouldn't do that. (laughs) Is she gonna go? Well, I don't know. I mean, he's the head of the party and the head of the country. Cannot Joe Biden prevent Nancy Pelosi from stoking the fires of war with China? Apparently, it's up in the air. Will she go, will she not go? It shouldn't be an issue at all. He should've spiked this from the outset.
2: Um, And that being said, there's another article again The voice of reason of all people, this ghoul, Henry Kissinger, former U.S. Secretary of State Kissinger, said geopolitics today requires Nixonian flexibility to help diffuse conflicts between the U.S. and China as well as between Russia and the rest of Europe. Kissinger warns Biden against
0: endless confrontation with China. Ray McGovern, your thoughts? Really quickly, in listening to Kissinger over this span of time, this reminds me of the adage, the older I got, the smarter my dad became. (laughs) Go go ahead, Ray. (laughs) Well, I can subscribe to that adage. Uh, He's
5: 99, mind you. I just hope that when I'm 99, I can keep my sense of balance and my courage in speaking out at what obvious is necessary here, not a two-front situation where these crazy people in Washington think they can take on Russia and China at the same time, You know, they're out of their gourd, and most people, including some in Western Europe, are beginning to appreciate that.
0: He says, Biden and previous administrations have been too much influenced by the domestic aspects of the view of China. Am I reading more into that than there is? Because I interpret That as Kissinger saying, you really need to stop listening to Tony Blinken and you really need to stop listening to Avril Haines and you really need to stop listening to uh, to all these other domestics that that haven't studied this like I've studied it.
5: I think you're right. Uh, I think that the people who are pushing for this confrontational attitude toward China are wet behind the ears. Blinken first and foremost, you know, well, I won't say, I'll not say it again, this, this privilege that comes of having uh, been, quote, well educated at the, quote, best schools, end quote, and knowing nothing about practical politics, uh, which Kissinger, uh, love him or hate him, is expert at, you know, it's going to get us in real, real trouble. It already has. And I don't know if Biden is, uh, you know, is really up to. Uh, being re-educated because that's what it will take. Maybe, you know, we'll we'll see how it comes out of the COVID thing. And we'll see how tonight uh, the January 6th investigation is headed because things are in great flux here. And in my view, if we don't deal with what happened in uh, 2020 uh, with respect to that, quote, stolen, quote, election, you know, we we need to we need to do that first, and then people will take us seriously and say, "Well, these people could be serious once they get rid of Biden. Maybe things will improve." Uh, but you know, things are moving too fast for that. So I fear for our country, frankly.
0: Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. The CIA director says Iran never resumed nuclear weapons program. William Burns, director of the US Central Intelligence Agency, yes folks, the CIA, said yesterday that contrary to four years of claims by Washington, Iran never resumed the nuclear weapons program it abandoned in 2004. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist and political analyst he he has traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Maupin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here as always. Burns says our best intelligence judgment is that the Iranians have not resumed the weaponization effort they had underway up until 2004 and then suspended. So that's something. Obviously, we at CIA and across the U.S. intelligence community keep a very, very sharp focus on. He said this at the Aspen Security Forum in Colorado. Uh, He also said the same thing in December at the Wall Street Journal's annual CEO meeting, according to CBS News. Caleb, in spite of the director of the CIA, who I would think if anybody in this country would know what's going on in that regard, uh, it would be William Burns. Um, In spite of that, the narrative hasn't changed. Well, the
6: thing is that Iran is a signatory of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Uh, so they cannot be proliferating nuclear weapons. Um, If they were to do that, that would be in violation of the treaty. And every nuclear site in Iran is monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency to make sure that they're in full compliance with the treaty. And at no point have they ever been caught not being in compliance. And in addition to that, you have the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the P5-plus-1 conclusion, the JCPOA, uh, that was a result of the talks that took place that was signed during the Obama administration, in which the Iranian government gave up almost all of their nuclear energy program, and Iran fully complied with that. So the notion that Iran is trying to get an atomic bomb is, is pretty ridiculous. Uh, the Ayatollahs are very clear that they oppose nuclear weapons. It would be illegal in Iran to even promote uh, you know, acquiring nuclear weapons by the Iranian government. Uh, this is, this is just a fiction. Um, you know, I mean, we're hearing the CIA director saying that they, they, they are not trying to get one now. I don't think they were trying to get one before 2004. I think that this whole situation is a bit of a hoax. Uh, and I mean, if you look at the details, you look at the work of Gareth Porter, uh, you look at what the international atomic energy agency that actually monitors their sites has to say, I mean, Iran is not trying to get a nuclear weapon. They're just not trying to do that. Now, what is interesting is, um, I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, that some of the sources that get treated with full credibility in mainstream media have long ago been debunked. I mean, uh, the Mujahideen cult, which is this religious sect that is at odds with the Iranian government, you know, they at one point produced uh, – they, they had a picture of this safe, they said. This was a safe mm-hmm. where Iran keeps their nuclear secrets. Well, it was revealed that they, that safe, that photograph came from a website uh, of a company that sells, that manufactures and sells safes. They just, you know, did a, you know, save image as, you know, cut and paste, basically. I mean, it wasn't even a very, very uh, well thought out, uh, you know, uh, layer of deception. But that got reported in mainstream media like that might be a credible report. Uh, so, I mean, again, they are really trying to to feed this narrative. We've seen images of Netanyahu at the United Nations with his little like bomb graph thing that he holds up as part of his presentation. But, I mean, facts are facts, and Iran has not engaged in nuclear proliferation. And no evidence that they have ever done so has ever been presented.
2: Let me ask you this from a different angle, um, uh, you know, for, for in, in a totally different context. Nancy Pelosi says, I'm going to Taiwan, and the Chinese pretty much say, yeah, that ain't going to work out real well. Joe Biden comes out now and says, the military says they don't want her to do it, right? Now, the we read everywhere, it's time for a war with Iran. The CIA comes out and says, uh, there ain't no there ain't no bombs there. Here's what I'm saying. It appears that there are forces within the Biden administration. I'm going to call it the Biden administration, but these forces might have been here before he was, you know, they, they'll be, they got there and there before he's gone. My point is, in both instances, it seems like the neocons and the warmongers are trying to make a drive towards war. But whether it's the Pentagon or the CIA. There are forces saying we're going to let some information out to throw a monkey wrench in that. So it appears that there is there are forces of restraint within the blob. Your thoughts, Caleb?
6: Well, I think that there's a couple factors here. First factor is that it's very clear there are different interest groups in the United States that have different agendas. I I mean, for example, uh, during the Obama administration, we saw relations with Iran improve and we saw relations with Cuba improve. Uh, but relations with North Korea got significantly worse. And then we saw under under the Trump administration, relations with Iran got much worse. Relations with Cuba got much worse. But r- relations with North Korea improved. And Donald Trump became the first U.S. president to ever visit North Korea. Um, and that uh, that there are different foreign policy interests in Washington. Different industries, different corporations have different relationships with different countries, and, and there are competing interest groups. And so that's one factor. The other factor is that uh, one way that you can confuse people and that you can, uh, you know, you can be an effective geopolitical strategist and, and kind of confuse your opponent is by being unpredictable. Uh, and if it's not clear where the United States stands, and Nancy Pelosi is going one way, but the military is doing another thing, it can be very hard to predict what your actions might be. Um, and I think that that may be intentional on, on some level or, or other. There may be an intent to confuse America's geopolitical rivals uh, and make it not clear who the United States is willing to uh, antagonize at the moment, who the United States is willing to negotiate with at the moment. Um, so while there, there's also confusion behind closed doors, I think there's also a a deliberate attempt to be ambiguous. Um, And I've noticed that the Biden administration seems to be doing this quite a bit. They they hide behind the fact that Joe Biden, you know, is an old man who trips over his words a lot. And they will they will say things and then they always have a way to, you know, to cover themselves to say, well, we didn't actually mean that. Biden said he wanted to remove Putin from office. He said, you know, that man shouldn't be in power. But then they said, oh, no, the, po- the policy of the United States is clearly not uh, to remove food. No, Biden was just, you know, he's an old man. He was confused. Well, that was a the way they could say that, but not take responsibility for it. And that seems to be the art that the Biden administration has really, really taken on. They, they you know, Pelosi's going to Taiwan. Oh, but the military doesn't want her there. Uh, You know, uh, you know, the USA is escalating tensions with Iran. Oh, but, uh, you know, now the CIA director is saying that they are not trying to get a nuclear weapon. Um, There's a tap dance going on where there's an effort to try and say one thing, but get credit for saying something else. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, there is a a fact that I think we have to recognize that to some degree or other, our, our leaders don't know what they're doing. I mean, you can, you know, all these hearings about January 6th and and what happened after January 6th, and it becomes clear that within the American government structure, there's not a unifying mission. There's not a unifying vision. Uh, They don't quite know exactly what they're all trying to do. Um, And, you know, this could be a situation where, you know, you had some of this during the Carter administration, and then out of that, you got the so-called Reagan revolution, where after Reagan came in, it became very clear what the United States was doing. And it may be that the Biden administration and all this chaos is kind of setting the stage for something, you know, something much more authoritarian and something much more straightforward, because this kind of confusion in Washington is not going to prevail for too long. I feel like there's going to become a point where you have to have you have to have the country on the same page or else things just come apart.
0: I was going to ask you if this is evidence of the weakness within the Biden administration, because I can't think of a time and you went back to Carter and and but even even Jimmy Carter wasn't this weak in, in terms of my recollection of the Carter administration there were some gaffes and there may have been some contradiction but there wasn't this amount of what I just perceived to be utter weakness because I if this had been any other president and Nancy Pelosi the president picks up the phone calls her to the office and says you're not going.
2: Uh, You know, uh, real quick, uh, you know what it reminds me of? The military doesn't want her to go. You're the president. Right. You call her and say you don't go, and you don't have to go on television.
0: Tell anybody. You pick up the phone, Nancy, you ain't going. Well, in fact, I was going to—thank you, because I was going to get to that point. No, no, no. Well, Uh, I think that the military thinks it's not a good idea right now, but I don't know what the status of it is. Joe— (laughs) This is you're not managing the Yankees. He's soft. soft. Caleb, this this to me is just utter weakness and confusion because this statement should have been made by Lloyd Austin, not by Joe Biden. And now it, it maybe it should have been made by Lloyd Austin standing next to Joe Biden. And then Joe Biden says, hey, whatever he says, <laughs> you know, but this to me, uh, Caleb, just shows utter weakness, disconnect and confusion. And I'll throw in one more thing. Nancy Pelosi is a Democrat. Joe Biden is a Democrat. Joe, run your party. Caleb, Mott.
6: Well, sure. And it's an odd thing. I mean, the question is that is that too simplistic? No, I mean, the question shouldn't be, does the military want her to go or not? The statement should be, we don't want her to go. Do they want her to go? And why are they they putting that on the military? Like you said, it should be on Lloyd Austin. Uh, You know, and why? I mean, if they don't, do they want her to go or not?
0: Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to jump in. But here's the other thing. Actually, this is a di- diplomatic issue. Tony Blinken is the one. The reason that I said Lloyd Austin should say it is because it's making a statement on half of the military. This is a diplomacy issue. So, actually, the State Department is responsible for this. How, how about we go one different? We shouldn't even
2: have heard anything. Well, that- It should have been <laughs> Nancy Pelosi calling Joe Biden. Hey, I'm going to Taiwan. No, you're not. Not right now. I'll let you know in the future, but you're not okay. going. Go ahead. Kim. We're not talking about it. So Radio silence. And nobody ever knows. That's the way a powerful president to do it.
0: Sorry, Caleb. Go ahead.
6: Yeah. I mean, we remember when Trump was coming into office, how he you know, he he spoke on the phone, not as president, but as president elect uh, with the the president of Taiwan Um, and that the USA. there, There is a certain faction that wants to push the envelope with Taiwan as much as they possibly can. Um, that's very clear. Um, so it, while that's going on, uh, there also seems to be apprehension about you know China responding and provoking something that the USA could not have control over and that could actually not you know work in the favor of the United States. I mean China, the mainland is able to you know is, is able to retake Taiwan militarily if they wanted to. That would be they would win. It would be a quick war and it would be it would be you know it would. It would be devastating and it would be a bad situation, but they would retake Taiwan. I mean, there, there's, there's no question about it. The mainland's military is far bigger than the, the military based on Taiwan. As many U.S. weapons as we poured in there. Um, and while the U.S.A. may want to provoke China on that issue, uh, I think that there probably is a large section of the military and people that are geopolitical strategists and others that say, OK, we don't want to really – really provoke this. Maybe we want to embarrass China. We want to, you know, nudge China, you know, make them uncomfortable, disrespect them. But we don't really want to (laughs) provoke China to go all the way into Taiwan because that that it may not be, you know, we have got this ongoing conflict in Ukraine, but China going into Taiwan might be over in a couple of weeks. And and, you know, there's probably a large percentage of people on the island of Taiwan uh, who might even be okay with that, uh, and so you know maybe maybe this wouldn't play out in our favor, uh, but but we will have to see. I, I'm curious if she ends up going or not. She's going, you know, she says she's going. I'm curious if she gets there, if it actually happens, if this is if this is just a, a trial balloon, they're gonna throw it up there and see what happens, and then they'll back away from it, or if this trip actually happens, we shall see. And it
2: sounds to me, based on what China's saying, China don't bluff. It if it if it happens.
0: Well, you can. That's a chapter you can you can end <laughs> with Taiwan. Well, and, and here's what I'm wondering, and and, I, and I, I here's my disclaimer: I am not advocating this in any way, shape, or form. But I think we have to look at this as a possible reality. The United States has sent ships six times into that area. S- ship number seven, ship number eight, hypersonic missile, ship at the bottom of the ocean. They warned you. They <laughs> Caleb, warned you. Caleb, we got 20 seconds.
6: Sure. I mean, again, the stakes are pretty high to be playing games like this. You know, it's not time to speak, uh, to speak foolishly and, and say things you don't mean.
0: And do things you can't defend. Indeed. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
6: Sure thing. Thank you very much.
0: We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a piece in RT, London falling, Britain's military decline exposes NATO's collapse in credibility and capability. NATO's plan to vastly increase its forward force is wishful thinking and the UK's struggle for military relevance is a perfect case in point. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control and the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War and from 91 to 98. He was a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq, and he is the author of this piece. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So you write, confusion is the name of the game at NATO these days, with the alliance still reeling from last year's Afghan debacle and unable to adequately disguise the impotence shown in the face of Russia's ongoing military operation in Ukraine. Scott, we've talked about a number of times that this fiasco in Ukraine is really just uh, Afghanistan part two.
7: Well, it it is. It's uh, Afghanistan part two with... uh, far greater consequences um you know afghanistan was far removed from europe and wasn't uh, didn't directly implicate european security uh beyond the fact that it exposed the reality that the united states uh won't go to bat for its european allies when american interests are at play uh we abandoned nato in afghanistan that's the bottom line uh but here in ukraine uh you know we're 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 dealing with a situation that um you know, the, the ramifications of this failure, uh, are going to resonate throughout Europe. Uh, they are resonating throughout Europe. And, um, you know, the, the, the NATO summit was just this, uh, little la la land. I mean, literally it was, uh, you know, wizard of Oz, like, uh, you know, the, the, the munchkins were there, the yellow brick road, uh, you know, it, it was just fantasy. Uh, it was so far removed from reality. Um, to be almost laughable, except that you realize that, you know, they're talking about implementing policies um, which are inherently warlike in their in their character. Now, the good news is they'll never be able to pull it off. But the bad news is we now know what they're thinking, and it's not good. They're not looking for a peaceful solution.
2: You know, Scott. Yeah. Uh, all this talk, you know, they're going to build up this mighty army of 300,000 and, of course, a million man army uh, in, uh, in, in Ukraine. But that seems to have fallen, fallen to the wayside. But Germany saying, look, we're going to build up a mighty army again. It will be the most powerful army, which, is, you know, people are you know, legitimately frightened. Holy moly, we don't want to see, you know, Germany, um, you know, with a powerful military again. Howsoever. If you really start looking at the economic woes that they are facing um, with this gas stuff, A, there will be in such economic peril that they'll be lucky to have enough security people to keep their own citizens from tearing the parliamentary buildings from from shreds to shreds, number one. Number two, Vladimir Putin has his thumb, I mean, has his finger on the off switch. And if he looked up and said, you know— the Germans are building a big military, and I think that could be threatening to me. I know what I'll do: click Nord Stream, but Nord Stream two is off, and all of a sudden they got far bigger problems than building a military. At any rate, your thoughts on that, uh, Scott?
7: No, you're 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 100 correct. I mean, Germany is a is a is a perfect case in point, but it's together with Europe. You know, Europe has since this. <coughs> Sanctioning has taken place. Europe's convened uh, several forums uh, to discuss, um, uh, you know, various policy initiatives. And I remember one just a few months back where the European uh, Commission uh, decided that they are going to allocate 210 billion euros uh, to redo the European energy. Uh, strategy so they can be free of Russian gas by 2024. Um, but the good news was they were going to do this by accelerating their goals for renewable energy. So they weren't just going to liberate themselves from Russian gas, but they were going to become green in the process. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. There were applause and cheers. And oh my God, they had PowerPoint after PowerPoint of how they were going to transform the Europeans society. PowerPoints are meaningless. Reality is what counts. And uh, you know who's not talking about a 210 billion euro uh, green energy plant? No one, <laughs> because it's irrelevant. Doesn't matter. It Doesn't count. Germany, you know, a while back the, the the you know the the German government said we're going to spend a hundred billion euros to rebuild the german you know what they're not talking about anymore Spend 100 billion euros to rebuild the german they don't have it reality came in it's a great powerpoint you know but powerpoints are cheap hell i can make a great powerpoint um, but you know I, I, i'm gonna make a powerpoint how i'm gonna transform my house into the new empire state building <laughs> um i'll have a plan for it but it's not going to happen um and this is the reality for what's confronting uh, germany today uh, it's so bad now that senior members of the German Bundestag, their parliament, are, are coming out saying, hey guys, not only do we need Russian energy <laughs> now <laughs> to survive, um, but we need it forever. And that we need to start understanding that we need to have good relations with Russia. We need to have sound economic relations with Russia. We need to be friends with Russia that this nonsense has got to come to an end. Now, this statement could not have been made a month ago, but it's being made today because the PowerPoints now are being torn up and burned in the, uh, in the earth because there's nothing left. They, they, they got no energy. They got no gas um, And the Russians. though you talk about Russians turning on and off the switch? Look what Russia did today. To show you just how smart these people are, Russia today repaired the Nord Stream One pipeline, got the maintenance that was needed, to turn the gas back on. Turn the gas back on, not at full flow, but it's back on. When at a time when everybody's saying, "Oh, the Russians are going to play the energy card and turn it off," and this Russia has a contractual obligation, they turned the gas back on. But they did it in a way that actually gives credence to the words of the German uh, member of parliament. Because now he's able to point and say, see what happens when we're friendly with Russia? What could happen? The gas comes on. You know, Europe is waking up to a harsh reality that for the past 40 years, their economy has been underwritten by cheap Russian gas. The only thing that made the eurozone possible was cheap Russian gas. The only thing that made a 4-day work week possible, cheap Russian gas. The only thing that made all the wonderful unions and the vacations and the, you know, healthcare benefits and pension plans that makes Europe such a wonderful place to live and work was cheap Russian gas. And now they don't have it anymore. And Europe is about to collapse, not just economically, but socially. Everything they thought they stood for is being flushed down the toilet because of their stupid lunacy of buying into an American-backed sanctions policy. The Russians are smart enough to know that James Carville's statement, it's the economy stupid, is the political mantra of the year. And that one by one by one, all of the G7 people that stood up in June and bragged about how they're going to stand up to Russia and China and everybody else. One by one, they're gone. Johnson, gone. Drogi, gone. They lost the Lithuanian prime minister. She's gone. They're going to lose everybody because nobody can withstand the domestic political pressures that are about to be brought to bear on politicians who sold the economic well-being of their nation on this false pretense of sanctioning Russia to defeat.
2: Scott, here's something I think you'll find interesting. Nancy Pelosi said that she was going to take a trip to Taiwan. The Chinese then clearly implied that there would be drastic consequences. And Joe Biden, I don't want to use the term stepped in, but wandered through, I don't know, the conversation and said, the military. Now, he's the president. The military says that a Pelosi trip to Taiwan's not a good idea. I thought he was the president, but I guess he's been, you know, the military's in charge. I don't know. What do you think about this whole screwed up scenario, Scott?
7: You know, Pelosi tried to go once before and was dissuaded. China has made it clear. I, I, I don't understand why, you know, maybe, maybe some people are probably getting it. When they say harsh consequences, China was going to invade Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. I mean that you know there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. And Taiwan and China made the the, the statement again, or, you know, made it known. If Nancy Pelosi travels to Taiwan, we will invade Taiwan. We will solve this problem by eliminating the problem. Um, and, and Pelosi, you know, she's she's you know full of herself right now. Uh, but the military took a look at that and went. If China invades Taiwan, there's nothing we can do to stop them. You know, we don't have a plan. We don't have resources. We got nothing. And they told that to the president, that if you want to lose Taiwan and have no options whatsoever other than sailing the American fleet to certain death, um, which will then, the sinking of which will prompt uh, a likely American nuclear retaliation, because we can't lose 12,000 people in one day and not retaliate with nuclear weapons. Um, you, know, you need to stop this. And so that's why the president did what he did. Uh, Pelosi won't go to Taiwan. Um, I, and I think the United States is waking up to the reality that China is dead serious about invading Taiwan if America continues the policy direction there. And that's why you're starting to see even Blinken saying we've made our point, but now it's time to sort of take the foot off the accelerator here a little bit um, because <laughs> China made its point. <laughs> I mean, Blinken can spin it any way he wants, but he's received multiple phone calls from his counterpart in the Chinese government and has been told with no uncertain terms that Taiwan will cease to exist as a modern nation state if America continues his policy direction.
0: And we have just a minute left. CIA director says Iran never resumed nuclear weapons program, and Iran says fatwa against building nuclear weapons unchanged. But the narrative continues. we got 45 seconds.
7: Yeah, this is in response to Biden traveling to Israel to, to try and uh, put salve on the Israelis' hurt feelings that Biden's trying to get into the Iran nuclear deal. Um, they They boldly sat together and signed a statement about, the certainty of military action, et cetera, if Iran ever uh, gets the capability for nuclear weapons. And Iran responded immediately saying, yeah, we can uh, can do 60%, we can do 90% today if we want to, um, and uh, nothing you can do can stop us. 90% is the level of uh, enrichment necessary to build a nuclear bomb. That doesn't mean that Iran is pursuing one. Burns is correct. They're not. But the statement put out by Biden and Israel was the capability. Mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, Iran (laughs) saying, guess what? We got the capability.
0: Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. Press TV reports the Secretary General of Lebanon's Hezbollah resistance movement, Sayed Hassan Nasrallah, said Israel is not allowed to extract from disputed Karish gas field if Lebanon's rights are not secured. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Quote, Lebanon is facing a historic and golden opportunity to get out of its financial crisis. If we fail to take advantage of it, we would not be able to extract oil within the next 100 years. We are not looking for moral gains out of extraction in the Karish natural gas field. We rather want to tap into our reserves. This actually ties directly into Joe Biden's often used phrases of sovereignty, of respecting the rights of individuals and countries, and uh, having countries do, and having the the voices of the people within countries be heard.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, look, uh, Lebanon is uh, uh, experiencing a huge crisis, of course, that is made up through the American um, sanctions on the region, and on Lebanese uh, financial uh, institutions. And the only way out for Lebanon is to extract its resources from uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. And they have not been allowed. They have signed contracts with various companies to extract the gas and oil. And those companies have not acted on their contracts because of the United States uh, vetoing uh, that. So this means that you know, Lebanon is artificially uh, uh, impoverished. And uh, the wars of Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah have set now a, a new ultimatum. Uh, by the end of August, if Lebanon is not allowed to extract uh, and if there is no demarcation of the uh, international w- water borders, the maritime water uh, borders, they, the resistance will set the agenda by attacking Israeli uh, infrastructure that is extracting gas and oil from uh, the looted fields of Palestine. And look, there's another thing that people need to understand. All the uh, gas fields that are in the Eastern Mediterranean um, are actually connected uh, to a deeper field that uh, is one of the largest in the world And Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah pointed this out. This is why that even if uh, Israel or Turkey or or Greece or Egypt or or, uh, Cyprus extract from their own um, uh, undisputed waters, it brings down the table of uh, gas fields that are in Lebanon. And the slower Lebanon uh, catches on, the less gas it will have in its own fields. This is a, a serious matter, and uh, Lebanon and Syria, by the way, since the beginning of this war on Syria in 2011, have uh, been um, you know, forbidden from joining the international market of uh, gas and oil.
0: When you said that Lebanon has contracts with companies and the companies are not acting on those contracts because of United States intervention— Is it possible then that Lebanon could cancel those contracts and turn to Iran, turn to China, turn to Russia?
4: This is exactly what it seems that Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah was pointing out to also in this uh, speech. He said if these French uh, companies uh, and Italian companies that have had these contracts do not deliver on them, they've forfeited their uh, basically contracts and therefore – Uh, And if the state of Lebanon is not going to act on uh, its right to extract uh, the gas and oil, the resistance may bring its own partners to extract. So here we have, just like the threat uh, last year when the United States closed all imports of gas and oil to Lebanon to starve the economy and and make people uh, live in darkness without electricity, and uh, Hezbollah delivered on the gas and oil needs of the market uh, without the state, and and threat, you know, dared the state and the United States behind it to stop them. And here is the same threat when put forward on the table. Not only a threat of attacking the infrastructure of the Israelis. As long as Lebanon is not allowed to extract, the Israelis will not be allowed to extract. But also, if the state of Lebanon doesn't step up to its uh, duty and make sure there is extraction of gas and oil from the fields of Lebanon, then the resistance will bring its own um, capabilities to its partners.
2: There's another interesting article that I think is connected. A senior Iranian in uh, Press TV, a senior senior Iranian official says countries of the resistance front should continue strong cooperation to bring about the expulsion of American forces from Syria and the whole region. Here's what I'm, th- I'm thinking about connected to all this. President Putin just was just in Tehran. One of the things that he, um, they, he did, uh, apparently, was they signed some kind of a contract where Gazprom will be um, working to help develop. These gigantic oil fields in—I mean, excuse me—gas fields in Iran, and it's and and they talked a lot about Syria, and and I don't know, maybe Lebanon, but it sounds like that—that's part of the overall conversation. How can these countries independently extract their resources, sell them, and keep the money without you know Royal Dutch Shell and Exxon coming in and and robbing them blind?
4: Yes, yes, and and of course, uh, at the same time. President Erdogan of Turkey was in Iran at the same time as uh, Putin was there, and uh, we everybody was hoping that maybe this will signal that Turkey uh, may uh, step aside and um, with its NATO, you know, responsibilities and maybe just uh, ex- you know come out of Syria and end its uh, actions there. But today, this morning, there was uh, a Turkish attack. On northern Iraq, uh, on a resort uh, a town in the Huk province, where at least eight civilians were killed and 27 injured, and there was a uh, an attack by two drones from Al Qaeda that are hiding in uh, the Idlib the territories that the Turkish army occupies. On the um, Hamimim airbase, the Russian airbase in Latakia, Syria, and those two drones were shot down. So maybe, um, you know, these two things signal to us that Turkey is going to try, continue to try to uh, frustrate any end to hostilities in Iraq and Syria that may allow those countries to reintegrate their economies and reactivate them. Now things are uh, uh, you know unfolding faster than than Turkey may want to um, you know hope for, because we saw right now the Iraqi government asking for the United Nations to condemn Turkey. They've withdrawn their ambassador from uh, Istanbul, from uh, Ankara, and uh, the Syrian government is uh, sending more reinforcements onto the border. With uh, you know engagement lines with the Turkish occupation zones in the north and e- and west of uh, Syria, staying
0: with the same article, uh, leaders aid resistance axis states must join forces. Uh, he says he's a, a, a this uh, this gentleman, Velayati, advisor to Khamenei. He says that um, the Islamic Republic of Iran has always supported and will continue to support the resistance front. He says that uh, Iran supports Syria's stance on opposition to some compromise agreements in the region and anti-Palestinian plans. And he says the Israeli regime and its puppets are too weak to be able to undermine the powerful resistance front. That last sentence, to me, summarizes Biden's trip to the region and why the Saudis and the Emiratis are now all into this uh, Abraham Accord agreement, and they are now joining forces out of fear that the United States will withdraw from the region, and they're trying to team with Israel because they see that being the strongest game in town.
4: Yeah, and what a strong game it is, (laughs) a a strong game that cannot uh, fight against Uh, Islamic Jihad and Hamas in uh, Gaza. Gaza can beat the hell out of the Zionists. In fact, today the uh, Secretary General of Islamic Jihad just threatened uh, military action against the Zionist colony because uh, two of the uh, Palestinian prisoners that are on hunger strike are right now over 100 days on hunger strike are Um, you know, in a very critical medical situation. And he said it's the duty of the resistance to guarantee the protection of uh, our best, of of the Palestinian people, our prisoners that sacrificed their um, life and days to the uh, liberation of Palestine. So we have, on the one hand, the resistance in Lebanon saying the Zionists have till the end of August. We have the resistance in Gaza saying that they will be uh, you know, responding if anything happens to the prisoners that are on hunger strike. And we have uh, the Syrian military and the Iranian military that have a score to settle with the Zionists because of the multiple attacks on Syria and the multiple assassinations of uh, Iranian and, and Syrian military personnel. Uh, And we have those flashpoints in uh, Yemen and in North Iraq that are also connected. So many of these fronts are very active and either of them could uh, trigger a complete regional conflagration.
2: In uh, the Saker Pepe Escobar writes, Russian President Vladimir Putin, Putin, in his own speech, was even more explicit. He he stressed specific steps to promote the intra-Syrian inclusive political dialogue. The Western states led by the U.S. are strongly encouraging separatist sentiment in some areas of the country and plundering its natural resources with a view to ultimately pulling the Syrian state apart. This was at the meeting between Iran, Turkey, and, uh, and Russia. Your thoughts on the, the importance of those words?
4: Oh, yeah, it's very important because we know the oil of both um, Syria and northern Iraq is just looted outright by the Americans, funneled out through Turkey, and mostly is powering the Zionist colony. So here you have, uh, you know, you know, outright highway robbery, Uh, piracy and shameful, you know, behavior Uh, and the Syrian state must access these resources in order to be able to deliver on the needs of its population. And I think right now with the continuous collapse of the Kurdish contras in North Syria, and they are collapsing, um, they've handed over basically all the northern waters with Turkey. Now there's only the Eastern Front. This is a good situation for the Syrian army uh, and and allied forces because now at least the Northern Front is secured uh, in any situation of uh, a regional war or a confrontation with the American occupation forces. The uh, Syrian military can be sh- assured that its back is safe. Uh, I think the United States is now clearly Having to recognize that his troops are getting uh, surrounded on on from three sides, uh, that the that, that the troops that are stationed in the Altanaf uh, and uh, in the oil fields of the resort are, uh, you know, have a now only one um, uh, border crossing that they can uh, go through. Uh, so we will see how uh, the Biden administration responds to these uh, changes on on the ground in in military positions.
0: Leith Maruf. as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
4: You have a great evening.
0: You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Russia resumes critical gas supplies to Europe via Nord Stream 1. The pipeline under the Baltic Sea had been shut since July 11 to undergo annual maintenance amid fears of a permanent halt of retaliation for Western sanctions. Moon of Alabama has a piece entitled Why Nord Stream 2 Must Be Opened Immediately. Next winter, Germany and other European countries will have an energy crisis. This crisis, we are told, is is caused by the proxy war between the U.S. and Russia in Europe. They say that Russia has cut us off from its natural gas deliveries. That's a lie. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back.
8: Thank you very much, gentlemen. Good to be here.
0: So the moon of Alabama writes, the Ukraine and Poland have shut off some pipelines that bring in gas from Russia to Western Europe. Germany has not delivered on the contracted maintenance that is required to keep the Nord Stream 1 pipeline at full capacity. The German government has blocked the certification of Nord Stream 2, which is technically 100 percent ready to work at full capacity. And Steve, I'll just add the German government has blocked off certification at the request of the United States. Steve Poikinen.
8: I'm, I'm struggling to remember what movie it is, but there's a scene where a guy takes himself hostage. And he holds <laughs> a gun to his own head and he starts screaming, don't he mean? Blazing it, he'll saddles. Do it. He'll sh- Blazing saddles. saddles. Yeah, Absolutely that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is exactly <laughs> what the German government is doing. They're holding a gun to their own head, and they're saying we're being held hostage. The the sanctions that have been imposed, the moves, I guess, diplomatically, even though they haven't been very diplomatic, uh, that have been that have been made in order to push Putin into these positions and to have a, a reaction, be like, well, I guess we'll we'll see what happens if you don't have your guys. This is all self inflicted harm. We've been referring to this as a controlled demolition or an intentional collapse. Throughout, you can't you can't look at the colossal blunders in basic economics and basic supply and demand and think that that the decisions that the German government, the EU have made, and the West in general have made have been those uh, of a country looking out for the best interest of their citizens.
2: You know, Steve, I tend to think, you know, for a while I was like, oh, they're up to something. And now I've come to the conclusion they're just idiots. When I look at it, here's what it appears to me when this happened, because if you remember, when this went down, we got all these reports that said the Federal Reserve and the economic advisers said, don't cut Russia off from SWIFT. Don't do this. Don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. Right. It happened. And it's like they lost their mind in a frenzy of sanctions. Oh, we're going to do everything. And they did all this stuff and they really didn't think it through. But it appears to me that Russia had gamed this thing out. And they had some plans. So you got one side who's acting like a bunch of kids playing dare, a bunch of 14 year olds playing dare at a sleepover. Right. Oh, I'll go further. I'll go further. Whoops. Oh, somebody fell off the balcony. Right. And the other side who game this out and they're forcing a conundrum. You know, I was in, 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 um, in law enforcement investigations when I taught interview. That's what you want to do. Put somebody put somebody in a position where they got to make a decision. That they don't want to make. Well, neither and neither option is a <laughs> is, good one. Exactly. Right. And that's what they forced Germany to say. What is your priority on one side? You got the U.S. saying, hey, we've got to keep up the pressure on Russia. And on the other side, you got the people with pitchforks and torches saying uh, we're cold and uh, this is get ready to go bad real quick. Steve.
8: There there's going to be a there's going to be a point to where, and look, for, well, first let me address what you were saying. I, I do think, honestly, that the foreign policy crew uh, on behalf of the United States has never had to live a rough day in their lives. They've mm-hmm. never known a moment of pain or a moment of want or have gone without. The Russian people have been living under tensions. The Russian government has been dealing with hostile foreign powers and sanctions for the entire that this entire century and most of the previous century they know how to deal with these things they know how to get around these things and you're absolutely right in terms of the russian side gaming it out they've been doing that for years because they've seen this coming the the bluster from the u.s is eventually going to try to get backed up so the russians had a plan for that the plan for that is making the German people go pick up sticks for firewood unless they buy the gas in rubles. That's all there is to it. If the U.S. and the, the EU doesn't want to play, then they're going to have to figure it out elsewhere, which is going to set back the, uh, the entire European economy, not just for a year, not just for two years, but for a solid decade. The, they've boxed themselves into a corner. And the only way out is to admit defeat and give up massive chunks of Ukraine and hope that's enough.
0: Steve, there was a time when Tony Blinken had to suffer. He was at Harvard and the they delivered the wrong vintage of Dom Perignon for his Sunday brunch. Oh,
2: the humanity.
0: And, and, and <laughs> the, 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 the compromise he had to make was just horrific.
8: Uh, he did a summer on a kibbutz where he had to peel potatoes.
0: Uh, That's (laughs) another one. I had forgotten about that Uh, (laughs) while he ships Dom Perignon. Um, Yeah, right. Russia warns it could could stop oil exports. Crude production will be suspended if the Western price cap makes it unprofitable. Russia will stop global oil exports if the West's price cap makes it unprofitable to continue production. This is according to Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak. A couple of things to that. One – That just sounds like simple, straight business math to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I can't make money doing it, why would I do it? When you add that to the the story that we opened with, and that is that the Russia resumes critical gas supplies to Europe via Nord Stream 1, to Garland's point, they've game planned this thing out. And where a lot of people, I guess, were expecting – Putin to use the turbine issue as the reason for not to turn gas on. Now he's turning it on to a certain degree, and I guess he's forcing the question, uh, hey, Olaf Scholz, who are you going to listen to? Joe Biden, which is taking you down this very, very cold rabbit hole where there is no gas and there is no energy, or maybe you want to listen to me. The guy that's never done you anything wrong. And by the way, is control of your heat and therefore your political future. Yeah, that's a that's a tough spot to,
8: <laughs> to be in if you're Olaf Schultz. It's a tougher spot for Olaf Schultz, too, because he's not really, he doesn't seem to be making his own decisions. He seems to be being uh, pushed one direction or another by either Ursula von der Leyen. Or, uh, or the Biden administration and the State Department. It, Germany is now – the German farmers have now joined the Dutch farmers. There are people in Germany that have been protesting in solidarity with the Yellow Vest for the last couple of years. They had all kinds of protests uh, over uh, – I think last winter um, – you know, over some of the, the lockdown measures and things like that, the Germans aren't having it anymore. Europe's not having it anymore. And it's one thing to switch around cabinet posts and cabinet members. It's one thing to have people step down and resign. But if they don't see something tangible in the next, in like next couple of months, It is going to be a very, very extreme winter. not just in terms of how people have to deal with heating themselves or providing food, but in terms of how many members of the European government are going to make it.
2: Yeah, they'll be heating themselves, all right, on the fire from the burning buildings that they, you know, parliament buildings. Uh, Support for more sanctions falls as cost of living grows. A poll says the U.K.'s richer households are more likely to support current sanctions than those with lower incomes. Soylent Green, if I remember correctly, was set in, what is it, 2022. This is Soylent Green year. Hey, Steve. Will they be eating the rich? Are we at a Donner Pants moment in the UK? All jokes aside, that might not be a joke. That's a that's a pretty <laughs> good one, though, Steve. Well,
8: so we we showed a clip uh, on the morning show a couple of weeks ago of a machine that uh, collects bodies off of the street, just kind of conveyor belt style, and it really was reminiscent <laughs> of the big trucks in Soylent Green. It really was. Uh, but I mean, you you can't you can't it. For long without reprisal, say let them eat kick. You can't. You can't just tell the peasants, look, you guys tighten it up a little bit. We're we're gonna go through some stuff. Well, you're gonna go through some stuff. So we're gonna need you to tighten up just a little bit more. Don't pay any attention to what we're doing because we've got to put a whole bunch of jet fuel in a private plane so that we can go eight thousand <laughs> miles to talk about how bad the climate is. So, uh, you know, we've got our priority, but you guys, you guys have to suffer because some bankers somewhere need a fifth house that's not going to, that's not going to fly anymore. It's just not, it might, it might for a little while longer here while people in the U.S. are, are, you know, still assaulted with comforts and enough distractions to keep us from actually getting out in the street in any kind of meaningful way. But they're over it in Europe because they've taken away their food and their heat And they're coming after their water.
0: And to that point, support for more sanctions falls as cost of living grows. The U.K.'s richer households are more likely to support current sanctions than those with lower incomes. You think? Uh, Support for imposing further sanctions against Russia is decreasing in the U.K. amid growing living costs. Steve this is not rocket science nor is this uh phd level economics i also would add to this that as the as the, as people really start to get a better understanding of reality in terms of who's actually starting this fight who is who is who is perpetuating this fight that also i think is factoring into people's uh the change in people's perspectives on this whole issue.
8: Well you can't you can't sustain lies on the scale that the US opened the in February with. You can't sustain the kind of of you know not really war but actually it is a war operation for more than a few months, before people start to ask legitimate questions, the propaganda works on the front end. Everybody was rah rah. We saw people at bars here in Vegas; they were selling like dollar F Putin shots of Ukrainian vodka, like the first weekend. Haven't seen them since, <laughs> because people have decided to to ask a couple of questions. As soon as you open your mouth and you ask a question, depending on who you're asking it to, you could be called a Putin-loving, alt-right Nazi weirdo, and you know you're not. So it's the when nothing makes sense, you kind of have to throw your hands up be like, you know what? I'm over it. I'm not paying – I'm done with it. No, I'm not going to believe it anymore. Why does my gas cost so much? Why is milk $9 a gallon? Yeah. And and then it just kind of hopefully snowballs from there.
2: You know, what would worry me, Steve, is if I were one of the Western leaders, is that the Russians really haven't played their hand yet. They really haven't done much yet. They're like Putin's like, well, you know, those two turbines we're getting. who knows? They might not work. You know, they're kind of throwing some elbows and they're lowering the amount of gas, but they haven't cut up, which means they have all their weapons to play. Come fall, come negotiation time, if they choose to do that, they got a hand. They got a a full chamber, shall we say. We got about a minute and a half
8: militarily as well.
2: Exactly. Steve.
8: Yeah, no, uh, Putin's committed 20 to 25 percent of his military to this campaign so far. He's got vastly more reserves to throw at it if need be. Um, You do not want to go up into a war of attrition with Russia especially headed into the winter. The U.S. isn't prepared for it. Any kind of coalition isn't prepared for it. Uh, If they don't get in front of a negotiating table soon, it's going to be – hell for every regular person
2: in that area. Uh, All I can say is this, whether it's negotiating or whatever, you don't want to have a conflict with the Russians in the winter. Historically, they tend to win most of the conflicts. Especially there. Yeah, most of the conflicts in the winter. Go ahead.
0: Steve Wojcicki, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece entitled, Disappointed by Climate Speech. Activists say people are dying while Biden dithers. Quote, the world's burning up from California to Croatia and right now, Biden's fighting fire with the trickle from a garden hose. Climate campaigners expressed frustration yesterday after U.S. President Biden announced new climate actions but refused to declare a national emergency despite mounting public and political pressure. What is Joe Biden afraid of? For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a independent journalist and author of The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Quote, Biden's failure to declare a state of emergency today is an insult to the millions of working people and frontline communities living the devastating reality of global heating, environmental racism and climate breakdown. End quote. This is from Ben Ishibashi, the People's Action Climate Justice Organizer. What say you, Dan Lazar?
3: Well, I mean, look, I mean, Biden is a is a I, I can't say. Enough bad things about Biden. <laughs> I mean, he's clueless. He has no idea as to what is causing global warming. Uh, the man obviously is a is very cautious when it comes to uh, you know Washington institutions or taking any kind of radical action. Uh, he is just. I mean, he is just so bad. I can really hardly describe it. That said a state of emergency would accomplish just about nothing. Uh, I mean, Biden, it wouldn't give Biden the tools that Biden would really need to combat uh, global warming because Biden himself doesn't want to use those, take those steps. He doesn't have support in Congress and the Democrats, you know, are as, you know, in general, are every bit as bad as he is. Uh, There's, a great deal of confusion about what's needed to combat global warming. And I don't think anybody in Washington
2: really has a clue as to what's going on. Uh, you know, Dan, I, I, I kind of agree with you, but I think it's worse than that. I, here's what I think right now. Joe Biden is a neocon, it's clear, and he has brought these Victoria Newlands, Blinkens, and et cetera, neocons to power in Washington, D.C. They don't give a crap about foreign policy, mean, excuse me, domestic policy, don't care about the people, no care about environment. Environmental policy. What we're seeing is when you're under the rule of a neocon of the neocons, they have one issue, and that is foreign policy, war and hegemi- hegemony. Hey, wait a minute. That's three. Well, I want to call it one. Dan Lazar.
3: <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, of course, you're totally right. But but no one has a clue. I, I mean, look, global warming in a way is really very simple, Uh America has got to cut back its usage of fossil fuels and, and switch to alternative fuels, uh, but also embark on a serious program of conservation. Now, America has never done that. It's been talking about conservation ever since the oil crunch of the 1970s and has never taken a single serious step in that direction, regardless of whether a Democrat's been in the White House or a Republican. I mean America America is all about driving. It's all about cheap highway fuels. I mean gasoline costs in America are are less than half of what they are in Europe. And gasoline consumption per capita is like you know down uh, like like uh, one fifth of you know, five times what it is in Europe. So America would have some deep, deep lifestyle changes that would have to be made before this problem can be addressed. And there is no indication that anyone in in our dysfunctional government, our dysfunctional and increasingly undemocratic government, is prepared to to take those kinds of steps. Uh, And that, you know, I mean, Joe Biden is bad, but... He's not alone.
0: You know, I, I think if you were to ask Ben Ishibashi, the one, what what's the one thing they would want Biden to do? I think for or what is the first thing they would want Biden to do is use your bully pulpit and, you know, stand up and give and give some forceful rhetoric to this position. And he's not even willing to do that. Uh, that because, as you know, you know, as well, if not better than I do, they say the bully pulpit is the strongest tool in the president's toolbox. And he's not even willing to do that. So that that that's my only that's my only point there.
3: Is, is he even able to? I mean, and, and this is the guy who 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 last week traveled to Saudi Arabia to beg the Saudis to increase fossil fuel. Correct. Production. In other words, to. So, so that the U.S. can generate more carbon dioxide, dioxide, and add to global warming, and Biden is like so thick-headed that he doesn't <laughs> see anything wrong here. While
0: he campaigned saying that he was going to make the Saudis a pariah, and he championed climate change, so the the, the inconsistencies. Yeah are nauseating. Quickly, before we get to Henry Kissinger, extreme heat piles on Europe's summer travel chaos, because this is now not only a domestic issue, this has is now become a
3: tremendous foreign issue. This is a global issue. I mean, I mean, health is threatened in the most direct way. It's expensive. I mean, if, if you're, if, if, if Britain has got to ins- install air conditioning, because you know, because temperatures are going to regularly go above 100 degrees Fahrenheit during summertime, then it's facing a huge, costly investment. You know, so so it's 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 costing money. It's costing in terms of health. Uh, it's going to destroy. It's going to cause a, a a major social crisis and a major environmental crisis. It really threat it really threatens the future of. Of, you know, of human existence as we now understand it uh, on the planet. But there's no one who is seemingly capable of addressing this problem in a coherent way because it involves deep and profound um, lifestyle changes. I mean, pe- Americans would have to walk more, cycle more, drive less. And, and America is all about Walking less, cycling less, and driving more.
2: <laughs> and you haven't even touched the uh the top uh spewer of greenhouse gases, the U.S. military. And they ain't about to do anything with that, with particularly with yeah. imperialism. Um and here's the thing, Dan, I think what it does is it's another instance of it exposes that the reality that the leaders of the Democratic Party will say, yes, just put us in, vote us in and we will address climate change and we will address this and address that. And when they get in, they that really isn't their agenda. It's just a way to placate their left flank, not their left flank. Most people in their party want things like Medicare for all or things like that. And they got to say, we're going to do this. And then when they get in power and the people are like, all right, let's can we get some of that now. Are you going to do it? Them just finding a way to snake out of it all the time, and I think that that uh, they're running out. They're you know they're running out of runway on that, Dan. Yeah,
3: and uh, abortion as well. I mean, you know, the Democrats are you know you know send us fifteen bucks so we we can elect uh, uh you know pro-abortion uh, Democrats. But uh, but they're they're first of all dem- not all Democrats are pro-abortion. In fact, Joe Biden. Uh, is an example of a Democrat who for a long time uh, attacked Roe v. Wade, did his best to undermine it. And just recently, uh, Joe Biden was, uh, was uh, caught um, as appointing an anti-abortion federal judge in Kentucky as a favor to his dear friend, Mitch uh, McConnell. Uh, you know, so the Democrats are at the very best extremely unreliable allies when it comes to abortion. And they know they won't do anything. They can't do anything. Look, the, 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 the government is so profoundly dysfunctional. Uh, I mean, we are in the midst of a constitutional crisis. Uh, the federal government has stopped working. There's, instead of a democracy, we have shifted to a minority uh, dictatorship. Uh, the government does not represent the people anymore. Uh, it's the country is really in an advanced crisis. It's falling apart. Kissinger warns Biden against
0: endless confrontation with China. Former U.S. Secretary of State Kissinger said geopolitics today requires Nixonian flexibility to help defuse conflicts between the U.S. and China, as well as between <laughs> Russia and the rest of Europe. And... People, I guess some people laugh at me. I see this as being a very, very profound statement by somebody who should be listened to. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be getting the traction that it should. What say you, Daniel Lazar?
3: Well, I I agree with you. And I think it's really amazing that Henry Kissinger is now the most progressive force and voice in Washington and that and that. His, his call for Nixonian flexibility. I mean, we're now, we are now, you know, we're now, you know, longing for the good old days when we had, like, you know, tricky dick in the White House because he makes the present occupants, you know, seem, uh, seem uh, you know, he's just so much better than what we have now. I mean, he's right. This this needless confrontation with China, this endless baiting of China, is, is absurd, it's worse than absurd, it's dangerous, very dangerous, and, uh, and no one knows where it could end up. But given what we've seen in the Ukraine, how the U.S. needlessly provoked a conflict there, I think it's every reason to fear that the U.S. will wind up doing the same thing in the South China Sea.
2: You know, Dan, and in the same way that Ukraine, obviously, it's clear now that that uh, the response to that um, conflict is going to wipe Europe out economically. I mean, at this point, you know, if you're in Europe, you know, turn the lights out when you leave and put the flag down because there
0: won't be any lights on to turn. Yeah, a good point.
2: Yeah. Put the candle out when you leave. Yeah, exactly. When you go outside to gather wood and forage for berries. But being that China is economically, in a way, to the U.S., providing parts and all kinds of things, what Russia is um, regarding uh, energy to- And grain. To, to, you, to the EU, to come to blows with China would wipe our economy out, I think, suspect, in the same way that Europe. So maybe that's the plan. Maybe, you know, we're feeling bad. that Only Europe's economy is wiped out, and we want ours wiped out, too. Dan?
3: Yes, I mean, it seems that capitalism is an is, is, is shifting into a, a mode of pure self-destruction. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's remarkable. There's, this war in the Ukraine is leading to a, to a calamity, an economic calamity, in Europe, the global south, the United States as well. Um, and a war with China would be ten times as bad, and that's putting it very conservatively. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and yet the Washington seems to be sort of like, you know, drawn to that kind of conflict like a moth to a flame. It just seems to be unstoppable. And every, you know, every few weeks is another provocation, another reckless maneuver, um, which whose only purpose it is, it seems, is to raise tensions between the U.S. and, uh, and, and Beijing. Uh, really
0: quickly, we have just about a minute left. Nancy Pelosi says she's going to Taiwan. Joe Biden says, "Well, the military says that's not a very good idea." Even though I don't know a whole
3: lot about it. Yeah. Well, it's just pathetic. I mean, okay. I mean, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi should not go to Taiwan. There is no reason for 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 her to do that. I mean, it's the equivalent of, uh, of Xi Jinping. I don't know. Got you know, flying to a to Mexico to talk with, you know, with a radical Mexican nationalists who want to uh, take back Texas. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, there's, just, there's, just, there's just no reason to do it. There's a, it's a pointless provocation. Uh, and it's an example of how uh, these people in Washington just don't see, seem to be able to resist. They are just like, you no, know, they're just pushing and pushing Uh, they want a second confrontation like the one they have in uh, the Ukraine.
0: Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back.
3: My pleasure.
0: Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece entitled Pharma mobilizes army of lobbyists to tank Democrats Medicare drug pricing plan. Big Pharma is fighting hard to keep their price setting monopoly intact. For insight let's turn to our next guest he holds a PhD in political economy teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books. The latest is The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, Jack, welcome back. My pleasure. So the pharmaceutical industry is mobilizing its army of Capitol Hill lobbyists in a last ditch bid to tank Senate Democrats' effort to cut prescription drug costs with legislation that would, for the first time, require Medicare to, rec- to directly negotiate the prices of a small number of medications. Uh, Jack, this one really seems mathematically and from a policy perspective to be so simple, but this is where the money and politics prevents legislation that would result in lowering drug costs that would work in the best interest of the electorate.
9: Yeah, well, you know, you got to understand, I think Big Pharma is either the first or the second largest industry that spends the most on lobbyists. I'm not sure which one it is. It's second, maybe, or third. I'm not sure. But it's right up there with the war companies, you know, (laughs) spending money on uh, lobbying and campaign and everything. So uh, I'm I'm not surprised uh, that that's uh, occurring. Um, You know, and then they turn around and they say, uh, oh, we... uh, we we got to justify our, our price increases here uh, because we have to market, you know. Well, lobbying is part of their marketing expense, right? So it's kind of a vicious circle. They raise prices so they can lobby more and they lobby more so they can raise prices. Uh, yeah, also, you got to understand these these companies are uh, monopolistic. In other words, uh, uh, a handful of them control uh, the market and the industry. And that's why they can just raise prices uh, at, at will. Um, You know, economists say, uh, well, inflation and prices are the result of supply and demand. Well, look at your pharma drug prices have nothing to do with supply or demand. I mean, look at the, the price hikes that have been going on. Is it because we're popping more pills than we ever were? Um, is it because they just can't produce anymore and they're shutting down factories like the chicken processing companies? Uh, no. Uh, so they're raising prices because they can. You say it's price gouging. It's monopolistic price gouging, just like the oil companies and a lot of other companies going on. Uh, it's not demand. It's not inflation. But the prices are going up. So uh, how else do you explain it? Well, it's easy. It's price gouging going on. They're raising prices because they can. Uh, and, uh, you know, Congress isn't doing any anything about it, realistically, except, you know, in this case. Uh, they're trying to negotiate for Medicare because the cost of insulin prices in particular uh, are driving Medicare costs uh, through the roof. Uh, So uh, they're trying to get a little bit of a handle on insulin and some of these others. Uh, And, you know, there's millions of people who depend on insulin in the U.S. um, And... um, the, the, the companies are just saying no. Uh, you know, we want to gouge everybody, and if you can't for, afford your insulin, well, then too bad for you. Uh, and every other country in the world, with these pharmaceuticals uh, corporations, uh, uh, have the government, uh, you know, health programs negotiate with them, and they have no problem. You know, the pharma, big pharma negotiating with uh, Canada and the provinces of Canada, they have no problem with that. But when it comes to here in the good old USA, oh, well, you know, we got a problem with that. Uh, I mean, it's so blatant you know, it's so disgusting and it's killing people uh, that, that these big companies, big pharma, get away with this. But you know, when you spend that much money on campaign uh, elections for these Congress people, and then you turn around and you spend even more money lobbying them, well, this is what you get.
2: You know, Dr. Jack, uh, maybe I'm cynical. No maybes about it. But I still feel like this is an elaborate game in that, okay, the lobbyists are doing all of this stuff and they're mustering an army of lobbyists to stop the corporate. I mean, the absolute corporate neoliberals have total and complete char- uh, 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 control of both parties now. Yeah, they're doing this. But why do I get the feeling that if they didn't send one lobbyist, if they didn't do anything, just sat there, then in the end, the Democrats would say we could have got it through if not for Manchin and Cinema. I mean, they already have two designated Republicans. They have a stalking horse um, a, a caucus. So, am I too cynical to say? Okay, yes, yeah, it's, it's part of the dance. But this Democratic and Republican Congress ain't passing that stuff. No way, no how. Doctor Jack.
9: Yeah, well, you know, uh, back in the seventies, I think there were like fifteen hundred lobbyists in Washington. Sounds like a lot, right? Well, ten years ago, there was thirty-five thousand. Lobbyists registered. I'm not talking about those not registered. I'm just talking about those registered 35,000 running around Washington, D.C. and spending all this money on these, uh, you know, the best Congress money can buy. And, uh, you know, we get what we get. Uh, and yeah, you got Mansion and cinema, And it'll be interesting to see what happens because, you know, uh, this, this, Medicare negotiating, government negotiating with with the pharma is the last vestiges of the Build Back Better bill that was proposed here, uh, uh, you know, two years ago and just got slashed, slash, slashed slash because of mentioned in cinema, right? And Biden didn't do anything, you know, he he didn't call the mansion out to the the woodshed, you know, he didn't do anything uh, because I think in the cor the corporate wing of that party that really runs it now. Uh, really doesn't want to pass this kind of legislation that the people need, you know, whether it's, uh, um, you know, rent rent uh, assistance, whether it's uh, education, no matter what. They don't want to pass any of it because it means they're going to have to raise taxes on the rich and the corporations, reverse taxes, the four and a half trillion that uh, uh, Trump gave in 2018. They're going to have to reverse that. I don't think the corporate leadership behind the scenes of the Democratic Party wants to raise taxes any more than Mitch McConnell and the Republicans do. So they throw out these uh, uh, f- um, point persons here called Mansion and Cinema uh, to take the heat off of them and make it look like they are the guys who are stopping this. But I think it's deep in the Democratic Party. They don't want this stuff either because it means you're going to have to raise taxes Reverse the Trump tax cuts on the rich to pay for it. They just don't want to do that. And I think that's why Biden, you know, who's part of the corporate wing there and Manchin and all of them, uh, you know, go along with the show. It takes the heat off of Biden uh, to have Manchin and Cinema do this. And I think that's the strategy here. Whether it's so severe, you know, because there's a lot of millions of people who need insulin whether it's so severe that uh, uh in an election year uh they they keep this shell game going uh remains to be seen i don't know uh you know they're going to i don't know whether uh, i i agree with you and we'll we'll have to see whether it's all just another um Mansion Cinema uh, theatrical going on here, which has been the last two years, or whether, uh, you know, they'll break down and actually have to throw a few crumbs at the folks. I hope it's the
0: latter. Uh, To your earlier point about raising prices, big pharma – has raised drug prices 1,186 times this year. Uh, The U.S. pharmaceutical industry exercised its virtually unlimited pricing power to hike costs for patients again this month as Senate Democrats made progress toward a limited deal to regulate out-of-control prescription drug pricing. All of that is understood, but this couldn't be done, I don't think, without the complicity of the insurance companies. Because so much of the cost of drugs is absorbed on the end of insurance. And then, of course, we have higher premiums, the deductibles that we have to pay and all of that. But again, and I'll just throw this name out there as an example, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, they've got to be complicit with the pharmaceutical industries or this wouldn't if Blue Cross Blue Shield said no. We're not going to pay any more money for insulin. The cost of insulin would have to go down.
9: Yeah, well, you know, they work in concert with each other because they scratch each other's back. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pharma companies raise their prices. Uh, Well, insurance companies uh, just raise their rates to cover it and then some. It's a good excuse. It's kind of like what the oil companies do. You know, the oil companies uh, uh, don't mind uh, when uh, OPEC and Saudi Arabia raise the price of crude because that means they can raise their price as well. And then they even, you know, ratchet it up a little bit more when, you know, the pipeline, the people... uh, Tack on their uh, value added, and then uh, you know the refineries tack on theirs, and then the gas stations and truckers tack on theirs. They love, they love OPEC raising prices. Well, it's the same thing here. You know, the insurance companies don't mind uh, raising the prices of these pharmaceuticals because a lot of them just, uh, you know, add add a little bit more uh, of their own on top of it. It's it's a terrible game that. That's going on. And it's uh, devastating, devastating to health uh, and the well-being of the American public. Let me ask you this,
2: Dr. Jack. Um, <clears throat> I, I think about this and I think, OK, the Democratic Party is set in a few months in November to get completely wiped out. And they are allied very strongly with Big Pharma. They're allied very strongly with these country companies that are getting huge supplements from the uh, Obamacare. Deal. Um, but it seems to me that they're just they're not taking any actions. They need to do something to mitigate this, you know, snowball rolling downhill. That is a biblical level um, disaster that they're facing in, in in November. And they seem to be fiddling as Rome burns or playing the lute. <laughs>
9: Yeah, well, you know, the Democratic Party strategy is uh, they hope that uh, uh, Trump announces that he's going to run, which he will uh, soon. And uh, they, they hope that, um, you know, the Roe v. Wade thing uh, mobilizes uh, women. And and they really think that they, with that kind of strategy, uh, you know, they can – have a shot in November, I think they're totally deluding themselves because the problem is inflation uh, and the problem is a is, uh, crime. Uh, and and uh, that's what's gonna determine what happens in November. And I agree that they're gonna get totally wiped, wiped out. But you know, the point here is the examples I gave you uh, is probably being replicated here uh, with uh, what's going on in healthcare. Uh, if if uh, the Republicans shoot this down uh, there, they got another issue, don't they? They got another issue. Oh, vote for us in November and then we'll really get uh, uh, insulin and uh, drug prices under control. You see, there, there's a kind of a cynical political, tactical mm-hmm. um perspective of the Democratic Party. They don't want to resolve these issues right before an election. Correct. They want the issues uh, to really resonate so they can get some votes.
0: But the mistake that they're making is they believe that it will motivate people to cross party lines and vote. No, people will just stay home. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Always my pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.